and welcome to the Ghosts and Folklore podcast. I'm Mark Royce, and on each episode, I investigate a different, weird, and wonderful subject. And on this episode, we are going to bravely recreate a few Victorian seances. Yes, recreate a few Victorian seances using first-hand accounts from people who were there in the 1800s. And who knows, maybe we'll make contact with the other side. And more specifically, we want to communicate with the kind of spirits that can touch you, speak to you, and most importantly, appear in front of you, allowing you to see their faces and maybe recognize someone you know. We don't want those boring spirits who just move glasses up at a table and say yes or no occasionally. We want the ones you can interact with. And so, to begin at the beginning, which on this episode is in the city of Cardiff in the year 1877, where a man called Scott from nearby Merthyr Tidville attended a seance where the spirit did indeed communicate and maybe even materialise, but I don't want to spoil anything quite yet. Now, I won't spend too much time setting the scene in this case because I have dedicated another episode looking in detail at what happens at a Victorian seance, and if you would like to check that out afterwards, that was on episode 67 where we looked at a seance in Swansea, but this time... We're further east down the M4, although there probably wasn't an M4 in the Victorian times, but we're further east down the M4 in Cardiff. But to recap very quickly, the scene was set very much like you've probably seen on television shows, on films, on ghost hunting shows. A group of people gathered around a table, usually touching fingers or hands, and they attempt to communicate via a medium, via a psychic who leads the proceedings. And... In many of these Victorian cases, it should be made clear that they are being paid for their services as well. Now, whether or not that affects the outcome of what happens, that's that's not for me to say. I'll let you decide. But it's worth bearing in mind that the psychic leading these, more often than not in these commercial accounts that get reported, and I, I should stress there are plenty of non-commercial accounts out there as well. There are more scientific methods of doing this. But in these commercial accounts, there is very often a financial element to proceedings, shall we say. Now, the way, the manner in which these psychic mediums communicated with the other side, or at least attempted to communicate with the other side, was by using a very tried and tested formula of setting up a yes or no system, which you would establish at the beginning and would be very straightforward. You'd specify how many knocks for yes, one knock for yes, and say two knocks for no, or maybe how many shakes of the table, whatever system you're using. And that's the kind of seance I jokingly refer to as the more boring seances, because the more exciting ones are the ones where things happen beyond just a nice yes or no. As in the Swansea episode I mentioned previously, where going beyond just communicating, death-like fingers, as they were described, death-like fingers appeared and started touching people in the room during the seance. But in this case, in Cardiff, we get different kinds of activity taking place. And if we believe what Mr. Scott claimed he saw with his very own eyes, we do indeed get an apparition 
materialising. And so, to quote from Mr. Scott's account, which was published back in 1877, right at the end of 1877, this took place on Boxing Day, on Wednesday the 26th of December, when, having had occasion to visit Cardiff, he tells us that, I called the same evening on Mr. Lewis in Roth and asked him if he would kindly allow me to attend one of his seances. He consented to my doing so on the following Thursday at 6 o'clock p.m. On entering the seance room, I was introduced to several persons, all strangers, with the exception of the worthy host. I was asked to search the medium, who is a delicate and unassuming young man. And I'm going to interrupt quickly here just to point out that while we might listen to these tales now or read these tales nowadays with a bit of cynicism, it's worth being clear that even back then, people did approach these things with an element of doubt. Maybe not quite enough doubt, but certainly before things kicked off at this Cardiff seance, he did do a body check of some sort on the medium. And to continue, he says that I felt a delicacy in doing so. He wasn't happy about doing this. However, on their insisting, I acceded to their request and found nothing on him but his ordinary wearing apparel. I also carefully searched the cabinet, which is a kind of closet at the back of the room in which we sat. At the same time, I was far from mistrusting anything that was sanctioned under the roof of such a gentleman whose honesty, uprightness and love of truth is unquestionable. So, before things begin, he's carried out this full body search of the medium, slightly timidly, but he's done it. He's also searched the room. There is a cabinet there which is being used by the medium for some, some reasons. We don't know what. Maybe that will come up in the story. And also, because he knows Mr. Lewis was such an honest man, he had no reason to doubt that anything untowards would take place. Now, of course, just because somebody seems honest to you, just because you trust them, they're an upstanding member of the community, that doesn't mean they really are. And maybe we can think of some examples in our current times where people might give this impression of being totally honest, and maybe they're not quite what they seem. Well, back to the 1800s, and he certainly believed he was an honest man. He'd done all the checks and body searches, not that he needed to, but he done them. And so, he says that we sat with the gas burning sufficiently to enable anyone to read. So it certainly wasn't pitch black. And after the usual service, which included singing and reading a prayer, quite a religious, quite a Christian start to events, the medium was entranced by a spirit, whom the company said was called Twilight. And yes, I'll repeat that because I thought that was strange as well when I first read that. But this spirit that came through was called Twilight. Not a conventional name like you might expect. Not a, a John Smith or a Janie Jones. No, this spirit was called Twilight. And maybe it's an alter ego they use. But Twilight came through and he then entered the cabinet. The medium now. The medium, but under control. Under Twilight's control. At the same time... 
the harmonium, so there's a harmonium in the room, the harmonium was played upon by a gentleman. So not a spirit, nothing paranormal there, just a gentleman picked it up and started playing. In about 10 minutes or a quarter of an hour, a materialized spirit came out into our midst and touched the harmonium and also the player. In the course of the evening, I witnessed as many as nine materializations. Nine, nine ghosts emerged from this cabinet. Nine different ghosts. And I know, I know what you're thinking already. You're thinking, well, it's just the same medium coming out of the cabinet nine different times with nine different disguises on. But to go back to the account, each of them, we are told, each of them different in form and appearance. And as regard height, they ranged from six feet one and a half inches to a baby child. Now, I'm as skeptical as the rest of you on this one, I promise you. But for a medium to transform from a six foot one fully grown person into a baby child, even if this was a trick, and let's, you know, may maybe it wasn't, but if this was a trick, that's quite a pretty good trick to pull off. But there's more details to this account. And he tells us that a lady spirit stood outside the cabinet, purporting to be the first wife of the late Robert Dale Owen of America. Now, to interrupt again quickly, Owen is a name that maybe we're not familiar with nowadays, but he was a Welsh Victorian social reformer who immigrated to the United States, where he wrote many an important work and so would have been well known on both sides of the Atlantic at the time. He'd gone from Wales, or technically from Scotland. He was Welsh, but born in Glasgow and was living elsewhere in Scotland at the time. But he'd gone from Scotland across the Atlantic to Indiana, where he wrote these important works. And this lady standing outside this cabinet in Cardiff, by all accounts, was purporting to be his first wife. And to continue, I spoke to her, telling her at the same time I admired the writings of her husband and asked her if she would write me something as a souvenir of this remarkable seance. And she said yes. And advancing towards the table, a distance of two or three feet from the cabinet, she took some notepaper which was lying on it and wrote me three pages full in the gaslight and folded the paper and gave it me which i now have in my possession now sadly i have no idea what kind of a writer his wife was owen is is better known than his first wife but it's still a nice claim to fame that the wife of owen wrote a few pages of original text for this man from beyond the grave and also from beyond the pond i guess that's a long distance manifestation a long distance horned in from indiana to wales but there is still more to come and near the conclusion of the seance a spirit who was called hopeful yes hopeful which is as good a name as twilight isn't it this was the spirit was called hopeful and said there was a spirit child with him who wished to materialize and at this point, things take quite a strange 
twist, even by my standards. And I would argue afterwards, quite a dark twist. But let me tell you, let me finish the account first. And going back to this manifestation of a child, and we are told that this baby was materialising, was trying its best to materialise for the first time. So nobody in the room, none of the regulars had spoken to this baby before. They had no idea who the baby was. And as such, a gentleman in the room asked the baby's name, to which the spirit who was with the baby said the baby's name is Flory Scott. Flory Scott, if I'm pronouncing Flory correctly, I think so, F-L-O-R-E-Y, Scott. Now, if you've been paying attention, you might remember the man whose account I am recalling for you, the man who wrote these words that I am quoting, was called Mr. Scott. And when he heard the name Flory Scott, he said that was the name of his little girl who died about eight years ago. It would appear the spirit of his lost child had come through and was trying to materialize. And he says, I saw her come out of the cabinet and heard her say, I am here, Papa. I can materialize. So not only has Mr. Scott's long lost baby materialized, it is now talking to him. And to continue... Now, sir, I wish to draw your attention to this fact that not one person in that room knew that I ever had a daughter of that name. Many other things took place which are worthy of record, but I fear I have trespassed too much already on your kindness, and so ends his account as it was published at the time. And before we move on to our next seance, and the reason I mentioned that the, the tale takes a dark turn is that for me, that finale there really does raise a big ethical question about what is going on in these seances. Because while we can't, of course, totally discount that what happened was 100% genuine. I mean, nobody alive today was there, so we can't say for certain that maybe, maybe they did communicate with these spirits from the other side. But let's assume they didn't for a moment. Let's assume they didn't, and this was all being put on. Now, there are some people who might argue, and I would disagree, but there are some people who might argue that as long as the medium was bringing comfort to Mr. Scott then they could justify their actions. Because if you listen to the end of that account, Mr. Scott was clearly very happy with what he'd heard. And as a result, maybe, maybe it did bring him some peace of mind. Maybe it did bring him some benefit. But the big ethical problem with that is under what circumstances is it acceptable to deceive a grieving person and quite often financially as well as emotionally under what circumstances is it okay to deceive them and i would argue under no circumstances and that is why while i i often laugh and joke at some of these accounts there are cases like this one which do throw up some very serious questions some very big questions and as such a much darker but 
Moving on to the next one. And as we've seen with the Cardiff seance, in some of the more memorable seances, the spirits being communicated with were actually seen. Be they your loved ones, as in the the example with Mr. Scott there, but they could also be well-known personalities. They could be total strangers. But whoever they are, they always appear either in darkness or, if not in pitch darkness, certainly, as with the last example, where the gas was dimmed, the curtains would be drawn, the candles blown out. Now, the reason why they only appeared in such darkened conditions was, according to some of the psychic mediums at the time at least, because ghosts are more likely to materialise in darkness, which may or may not be true. There is a strong argument nowadays that it's actually the opposite and more ghosts are seen in the daytime, as my good friends from Cymru Paranormal were talking about on this podcast last year or or the year before, whenever it was, I, I lose track of what I've done with this podcast. But in such accounts, as with the one we've just looked at and as with the next one coming up, people do often struggle to make clear, definite identifications of the figures they see because it's in darkness because of the conditions under which these seances are conducted. And I just wanted to make that clear before we crack on with the next tale. And for this one, we are heading to 1873. And it was a public seance with the mediums, Mr. and Mrs. Holmes. And a small group of people had gathered for the occasion, many of which we are told had sat with the mediums before, so they had a good idea of what to expect. And what follows is an account of the evening's proceedings. And so, to quote, the evening commenced with the usual dark seance. So we're in the dark already. And for more on dark seances, go back and check out that Swansea episode. But the evening commenced with the usual dark seance, which was of a very pleasing and successful description. Instruments were carried and played by the spirits, and the sitters were touched repeatedly with them. So, straight away, right off the bat, we're getting confirmation of paranormal activity, and we're also getting confirmation that it all happened in the darkness. And to continue, the spirits, Richard and Rosie, Richard and Rosie in inverted commas, so maybe the names have been disguised here. Either way, they're a damn sight better than Twilight and Harmony. But the spirits, Richard and Rosie, came round the circle. That's the circle that people were sitting in, people sitting in a circle, which might be stating the obvious, but if you don't know, you don't know. Richard and Rosie came round the circle speaking in an audible voice, as opposed to an inaudible voice, I don't know, but it was in an audible voice, a voice they could hear, and they were touching the hands, the heads, and the faces of the sitters quite freely. So they were having a good fondle of the people sitting in the circle. They were touching their heads, their hands, their faces. Richard and Rosie were having a great time. And of course, they were speaking. Now, a Mr. Corin, again, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, C-O-R-I-N, Mr. Corin of Swansea and Cardiff, which is a stranger. He must have had two houses. There aren't many people from Swansea and Cardiff. But Mr. Corin of Swansea and Cardiff was slapped on the head by Richard, the concussions being so loud as to be heard all over the room. That must have been one heck of a head slap because everyone could hear it echoing throughout the room. Rosie, on the other hand, Rosie kissed a lady 
and it doesn't specify whether she liked it, but Rosie kissed a lady. And if that wasn't enough, the ring, sadly they don't specify exactly what they mean by the ring, but the ring was put on a gentleman's arm who had never witnessed any of the phenomena before. What difference that makes, I don't know. But somebody who was a first-time person there or somebody who had been before and not witnessed anything was now getting mixed up in what was going on. And with that, the dark seance being finished, arrangements were made for the main attraction. Spirit faces. And I probably should have put a, a drum roll or something there to build up the, the excitement before saying spirit faces, because this is, this is the main thing of this seance. But before we look at the spirit faces, we should bear in mind that all of the people in this room are sitting in darkness and can hear the spirits. They can feel the spirits in some cases, the spirits are slapping people and kissing people. And it is under these conditions that they now try and see spirit faces. And what does that mean? Well, to continue, one half of the folding doors leading into the back drawing room was opened and a temporary door of leather cloth substituted which had an aperture about a foot square and five feet from the floor the back drawing room being thoroughly searched and the doors locked. Once again, I, I mentioned this this attempt to, to, to clear away any doubt, any lingering cynicism that people like me might have. And it's like they're saying right at the start, look, if you don't believe us, go and check for yourselves. Go and look around in these rooms. Search us if you want. There is nothing there. And to continue, with the scene set, Mr. and Mrs. Holmes sat in front of the temporary cabinet, the one that's just been described, and they were in full view of the spectators, with a small table between them. The visitors forming part of a circle commencing behind Mr. Holmes and extending in a curve in front of the aperture. Two candles were left burning at the left-hand side of the room, but they were shaded by a newspaper being placed in front of them to prevent the rays falling directly on the aperture. Ultimately, one of the candles was extinguished as the rays crossing each other interfered with the experiment. There was, however, plenty of light to see every object quite distinctly. And this is why I made things clear about the lighting earlier, where the mediums did claim that the darker it was, the easier it was to see the ghosts, which might sound like one heck of a contradiction. And as with this case, when nothing happened, they tried to solve it by making the place darker, by putting out at least one candle. But our narrator does, in this case, make it quite clear they can still see every object distinctly, despite the lights being dimmed even further. Now, there is an argument coming up very soon in this tale that would suggest that they couldn't see everything clearly. And as these events took place well over 100 years ago, we can't really go back and check. But to get back to the account, and in a little while, a face appeared at the opening, the features of which were indistinct and ghastly. This face was not recognised. The second presentation was that of an old man with prominent shaggy eyebrows, strong aquiline nose and prominent chin. This form was recognised by a lady present as the well-known 
features of a spirit whom she frequently sees in the clairvoyant state. Mr. Burns, who has received many communications from the spirit, asked if the figure represented the spirit alluded to when it nodded in affirmative. So, just to recap, a face appeared, nobody recognised it. A second face appeared, and there was a lady who did recognise the features, but not of a, a flesh and blood person, as it were. Some face that she'd seen in some clairvoyant state. Now, moving on to the third face. The next face was that of a diminutive little girl of small features, but exquisite form. Mrs. Burns at once recognised it as a sister who died in childhood, as she was exceedingly small in figure and deficient in vital power. And just to interrupt quickly, but there are obvious parallels here with what was going on in the first seance with almost sort of pulling on the heartstrings then of, of a grieving family member. In this case, it's, it's a sister, a young sister rather than a daughter. But in this case, this isn't the first time she's had or she thinks she's had some kind of communication from the other side, from her sister, because she has quite a unique object that, as far as she is concerned at least, offers proof that she is indeed communicating with her sister. And to continue, it is the same spirit that appears on a spirit photograph, a spirit photograph obtained by Mrs. Burns at Mr. Hudson's. So this is her object, her physical proof that she's seen her sister, this spirit photograph, which I haven't seen this particular one, but a spirit photograph would usually show the sitter, it would usually show the person involved here, and the spirit floating in the background in some way. And she mentions that she got this from a Mr. Hudson, and I am assuming this must be Frederick Hudson, there can't be that many well-known Victorian spirit photographers out there. And if indeed it is Frederick Hudson, which I'm assuming it must be, there is another tenuous Welsh link, because if you do a search, an, an internet search on whatever browser you use for images taken by Frederick Hudson, there's a very famous one that was taken of Alfred Russell Wallace. Alfred Russell Wallace, arguably the most famous person to be born on Welsh soil who went hunting ghosts during this period. He was also better known for conceiving of the theory of evolution independently to Charles Darwin. And it does baffle a lot of people. It drove some of his contemporaries, some of the serious scientists he knew, quite mad at the time. Because how could somebody like Wallace, such a prominent, successful naturalist, who could, who did conceive of the theory of evolution, I mean, arguably one of the biggest scientific theories ever in the history of the human race, how can this man who conceived of this independently to Darwin also believe in such things as seances and psychic mediums and spirit photography? Well, that, as they say, is a talk for another day. I can't go off on too much of a tangent about Wallace right now. I will record an episode all about Alfred Russell Wallace, the Victorian ghost hunter, at some point. But now, returning to this seance, and Mrs. Burns believes that this is her long-lost sister. She has the photo of it as well, and by all accounts, the identities were certified as well by communications from the spirit thus represented. Sadly, it doesn't tell us how it was 
communicated how they did this, but the identity was confirmed by this person from the other side. Now, after this, an old lady with a cap on appeared at the opening, and one of the ladies present thought this spirit had a resemblance to a deceased relative. And the strange gentleman, which is a very curious way of describing somebody in the press, and the strange gentleman was impressed that there was a spirit there that was the likeness of his grandmother, who he well remembered, but the features were so indistinct to be successfully recognised. So sadly for this man, for this strange man, the features were too indistinct in the darkness for him to give a definite identification. So, lots of people seeing spirit faces here. Quite a few people having a few guesses at who it might be. A lot of people think it's relatives, but there's one more face to come. And to quote once more, the last face that appeared was the most perfect form of the whole series and remained longest in view. It was that of a man apparently of large build and upwards of 60 years of age. The hair was of a dark iron grey colour, considerably mixed with black and parted on one side. The brow was square and massive, the nose rather high and sharp, with a well-formed mouth and white beard. Mr Corrin, who sat next to Mr. Burns. This is Mr. Corrin of both Swansea and Cardiff. Mr. Corrin at once exclaimed that it was his father. Every feature of whose likeness was strikingly portrayed in the object before him. Now, I don't know what Mr. Corrin would have made of that description of his father. Apparently, his brow was square and massive and his nose was too high and sharp, but... It was, Mr. Corrin says, his father, and he was deeply interested in what he saw, so much so that for a few seconds he felt so absorbed that he could not speak to the spirit. He was so shocked by what he saw, he was literally speechless. But he found his voice. He then addressed him and asked if it was indeed his father. When the figure made signals in the affirmative, again, we don't know what these signals are. I'm assuming maybe, you know, he, he nodded his head or something, say maybe a, a, a thumbs up or something. Well, he pro well I, I don't know if they used thumbs up in Victorian times, but whatever he did, he did something to confirm that, yes, it was indeed him. And this form, we are told, lingered for a long time, showing the face in various aspects, going away and coming again. There could not be a more successful instance of identity than this was. After this figure appeared, the power was exhausted and the seance terminated, everyone being highly gratified with what had been witnessed. And once more, as with the first account, while those in attendance might have been gratified, personally, with the benefit of hindsight, I'd like a little bit more information, please, before I accept any of this on face value. All of which brings us to the end of another seance and brings us to the end of another episode of the Ghosts and Folklore 
podcast. If you'd like more first-hand accounts from Welsh seances, as mentioned, episode 67 features one of my favourites from Swansea, the one with death-like fingers. And all of these accounts, the one from Swansea and the ones on this episode and a lot more, were published in my first book of Welsh ghost stories called Ghosts of Wales, Accounts from the Victorian Archives, which, like all of my books, is available from all good bookshops offline and on, and where possible, always try and support your local bookshop if you are thinking of picking up a copy. I'm sure they can order one for you if you ask them nicely. And if you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, you can, as always, treat me to a coffee via my website. Or if you'd like to help out for free, you could just leave a nice review or give it a quick thumbs up or five stars or whatever the options are for being nice on whatever platform you're consuming this on. Finally, if you'd like more Ghosts and Folklore, you can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, and I'm on Instagram. And if you haven't already, of course, be sure to hit the subscribe button and you will never miss an episode ever. And so on that note, it just leaves me to say thank you very much for listening. Dioch and Varian Amrando. I've been Mark Rice. This has been my Ghosts and Folklore podcast beaming to you from Wales to the world. And remember, if a ghostly face does appear to you, don't just sit there in the darkness. Turn on the lights and get a good look at it. Until next time, no star. No star.